Discussions about the future of digital commerce are often accompanied by a quiet sense of foreboding, a fear that we're leaving the joy of shopping behind and heading toward a future where stores are nothing more than static web pages, needs are algorithmically divined, and orders are robotically fulfilled. A future where the human pleasure and serendipitous discovery of shopping becomes nostalgia, a relic of retail's past. And a world where charming small and medium-sized brands become invisible in a landscape dominated by e-commerce behemoths. I'm Doug Stevens, and in Episode 3 of Retail Reborn, the Business of Fashion's new podcast series on redesigning the retail industry, presented by Brookfield Properties, I speak with four retail leaders who each, in their own way, is challenging this narrative and working to build a better and, dare I say, more human experience in the online world. The coronavirus pandemic has become a wormhole into the future, pushing both consumers and retailers firmly across the threshold of the digital era. In only a few months, a handful of online marketplaces became the primary source of fulfillment for global consumers cut off from normality. More people are finding new ways to get their groceries that don't involve stepping inside the store. Fox 13 Sydney Glenn explains how that... Amazon is seeing a surge in demand as many people turn to online ordering to get supplies during this outbreak. So the company plans to hire an additional... 100,000 Time now for business headlines. People are stocking up on everything, and that's helped drive up earnings at Walmart. In the quarter ending the 1st of May, sales there were up 10%. It's no secret that COVID-19 has been a boon for the world's largest online players. According to Time magazine, Amazon's volume between May and July of this year was up a whopping 60% compared with the same time last year. And this while millions of other retailers worldwide withered under the stress of lockdowns. It all raises speculation about the future. Are we as consumers and brands destined to reside in a largely static, antisocial and algorithmically driven digital world where the joy of shopping is replaced by a Pavlovian response to our doorbells in anticipation of the next delivery? And if so, do we risk losing the inherently physical and human aspects of retail? So I got my graduate degree in computer science from MIT, and then I was a software engineer and tech lead at Google for five years. And while I was there, I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer because I love fashion. So I started taking fashion design classes on the side at FIT here in New York. I uh, realized after a couple of semesters that I was really bad at drawing, uh, so then I decided to stick to the tech side of fashion. That's Nia Singh. I met Nia in 2018 after an introduction through a venture capital firm that had recently funded her startup, a startup aimed at solving one of online shopping's oldest problems. And what I realized through that is that, um, you know, the e-commerce front-end interface has really not changed, you know, in you know, Amazon created this interface originally to sell books 25 years ago. And all the e-com platforms today, they have innovated so much on the back end and how, um, you know, the logistics and all of that. But the front end has pretty much stayed the same. And if you want to create something that's different for a brand or a retailer, they have to put in a lot of their own engineering resources to build something very custom. And it's very difficult to evolve beyond this grid interface. So that was kind of my first starting point uh, of then that planted the seed in my head. After that, I was the head of product at Vogue uh, for four years. So I was the first tech person they ever hired in their history. And it was a dream job for me as I love fashion. 
It was at this point that Singh experienced something that would not only change her career direction, it would set her on a mission to reinvent the online shopping experience. And then I um, tried on a VR headset uh, at some point, you know, one of the Oculus DK2s, the early versions. And um, I'm not a gamer at all, but for me, it was just like, this is how I would want to shop because I've had this frustration always that online shopping is so boring and so tedious. Um, and I don't always have time to go to stores. So I want kind of that experience without having to go to the store. And I was like, yeah, this is going to be the future. So what we do now is really uh, web-based and focused on just having a very, very easy to access experience that you can just see on your phones, um, on your desktop without requiring any special hardware or any special devices. So yeah, that's kind of the journey. And it's basically, you know, trying to solve this problem of the e-commerce interface not um, being very dry and not really being suitable for different types of shopping. So it's very good for directed shopping. Um, but not um, great for discovery-driven shopping. So that's the problem we are trying to solve. And with that, Singh founded Obsess. Obsess is an experiential e-commerce platform. Uh, We essentially enable brands to create much more visual, engaging, immersive online shopping experiences. And essentially, we use virtual reality and augmented reality technologies to do so Unlike conventional marketplace websites, Singh and her team are more in the business of creating online habitats that can take many forms. The realm of what Obsess creates is limited only to the imaginations of the brands she works with. Once these worlds are constructed, consumers can then navigate and experience them directly from their mobile devices, discovering products, information, and interactive media along the way. So we build out this shape of the space. So whatever kind of, whether it's like a real store that you want to build, in which case we would build like walls and shelves and things like that. Or, you know, it doesn't have to be restricted to that. Like we have experiences, let's say, for example, for Tommy Hilfiger, the spring 2020 collection, we created four different scenes, one of which is like a planet, one is a desert, one is this futuristic city. So all of that, we would kind of just build out the shapes first. Then the second uh, step is texturing, which means like we are going to apply uh, materials to every single surface that are realistic. So for us, it is extremely important that the experiences look photorealistic Um, and whether or not, you know, in some cases, yeah, you're trying to make it look like a store. So of course it has to like look like a real store. In some cases, you may not be trying to make it look like anything realistic. Singh and her team also intend to attack one of online shopping's most profound Achilles heels the lack of social shopping. For shopping with your friends, so that's something that, um, yeah, that is a big missing piece in today's online shopping. And that's actually one of the big um, areas for us is social um, and enabling that uh, within our virtual store experiences. It's something that's going to take time to develop, but that's definitely a huge part of our roadmap because if you imagine like in virtual stores in a 3D space, you can you should be able to like visit with your friends and go to different parts and get you know opinions different parts of the store get their opinions on different items interestingly singh also brings up the idea that as shopping experiences online become more real feeling the goods could in fact become more virtual so you're um, you know the ip of these brands is around the design and right now all that design is physically produced but if you think about the future a lot of that design will just be virtually produced and it may not even ever need to go to the physical state. So I know that's like very, very out there, but I do think that's like a huge part of within like five to 10 years. In the future, you can imagine with augmented reality that 
you don't need to own those items physically. You can actually just digitally wear the items or digitally carry the bags. And in your virtual version, you are uh, in social media or in your video chat that you are um, just virtually carrying those items. So I think this is this is still like a very new area, but I, I feel like this is really promising. And I think there are going to be brands that will pop up that are entirely virtual. So they never produce anything physically, but they are designing clothes and accessories virtually. And then I think there will be existing brands who are also like getting into that space. So if we're crossing into a world where virtual products could replace real products, could online experiences ever begin to replace the social value and immersive nature of real life experiences? Indeed, could we prefer an online world free from friction, out of stock, service issues, and crowds. In other words, will virtual stores soon replace the need for real stores? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, I think it's going to take time because for us to get to the point that the virtual experience is everything that a real life retail experience can be, it's certainly, I would say, at least 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 year timeline. And the reason for that is, I mean, first, of course, it's just the technology getting to that place, but then it's all the platforms that build on top of it. So for example, let's say virtual try-on, right, for clothing. This has been an area that's, you know, everybody, like people have talked about it for a long, long time, just like virtual shopping. Um, but it's still kind of difficult to find things that are very easy to use at this point, even though, you know, some of the technology will be there. Singh had hit on one of digital commerce's most significant blind spots, apparel, and in particular, luxury apparel. Not only is apparel troublesome from a decision-making and fitting standpoint, luxury brands have been decidedly more reluctant than most to set up shop online for fear of losing the exclusivity that serve to make many of them what they are today. So can technology bridge the fashion and luxury gaps? I had a feeling there was someone who could shed more light on this. Search her name and you'll find articles declaring her a fashion empress and a fashion queen, which turns out to be somewhat ironic. I'm not really uh, a fashion person. So actually I'm a tech person. I've always worked in technology. I've always worked in technology around helping companies transform their businesses. Uh, and I've been doing this for the last 20 years. My first company that I worked for, we didn't even have an internet yet. It was still dial-up. Christina Fontana is head of fashion and luxury Europe for Tmall at Alibaba Group and has overseen the growth of Alibaba's stable of luxury and fashion brands. Unlike Western counterpart Amazon, which has yet to crack luxury's code, Alibaba's Tmall Luxury Pavilion has become a safe haven for more than 150 luxury brands, seeking a conduit between themselves and Chinese consumers, many of whom reside in tier two and three cities outside China's main centers, where most luxury stores reside. I started with Alibaba when they opened the office in Milan about five years ago. And I naturally ended up working with fashion because fashion and luxury is such an important piece of the Italian business ecosystem that kind of fell into that space. And at the time, four or five years ago, it was also one of the industries that needed the most help in revolutionizing the way that they were using digital and that they are using digital to face a new world. So what does this new world Fontana describes mean for how retailers and consumers connect, 
especially against the backdrop of COVID-19. What we've seen in the last few months is each consumer has a different level of comfort right now about going back into stores. You know, and in some places, for example, the United States, maybe some of the stores aren't even open yet. But it's about finding the comfort zone for your consumer. So when we talk about bringing people into store, what we see is, for example, I'll use an example from China. We have one brand that we're seeing a lot of people watch their live streams on their Tmall store, right? They would live stream the fashion show, but then they would continue buying what we call standard products online. So they would continue buying belts, bags, things that don't have sizing issues or things like that. But what we did together with that brand is we invited the people that had been watching those live streams to come into the store for an appointment with a personal shopper. So I said, okay, we know that you've seen this. You've come back and watched the video three or four times. The products have just arrived in the store. Come into the store and see them. And of course, it's geolocalized because in China, we, we have that information and we can bring them into the closest store. This online to offline or O to O flow of consumer traffic is something Fontana suggests is becoming implicit in China. In fact, as she describes, the boundaries between the two have all but disappeared. Another example that we have, which was very similar, we worked with a brand that was looking for a new physical location, okay? And they wanted to test different areas in Beijing. So they created, they built as a brand, they built the physical pop-up store, right? They built a pop-up store. It was beautiful. We made it all 3D and put it online. But what we did is we invited Alibaba Luxury Pavilion VIP members to come to the opening of the store because it was a new area for them. They wanted to understand if they had the right traffic in that neighborhood to support a full-fledged flagship store in that location. So we used our data together with their data because they have a um, store on, on Tmall. We were able to match those customer segments and bring the right people into their stores. At the same time, we were able to allow people that weren't in Beijing, so all of the fans that were following this brand on um, Tmall were able to follow this event, which was a super event. They had built this, be- you know, they spent millions of euros to build this beautiful pop-up store that was going to last for, you know, a week, 10 days uh, with KOLs and all these kind of things. They were able to amplify that messaging and share that experience with people throughout China instead of just the people in Beijing. Um, so this is what we talk about when we're talking about bringing people in store and having that experience be you know, the same and very fluid between in-store and online. Now a word from our sponsor, Brookfield Properties' Meredith Darnall, Senior Vice President of Business Intelligence and Strategy, who shares retail insights from the real estate perspective. As real estate owners, so we're uniquely positioned to support our retailers across their value chain at their most meaningful touchpoint, which is their store. As digital native brands have opened across Brookfield properties, the feedback that we've received from the leadership is we're going to give you greater sales than we were on the urban high streets. In essence, Alibaba was using data from online consumer behavior to inform marketing decisions and events in the physical world but then using those events in the physical world to create media experiences that get pushed back out to online. 
perhaps most surprising of all was that the world Fontana described was not a dystopia of consumers staring blankly into the neon light of their computers or flying robots delivering their orders, but rather of people. People connecting with other people or key opinion leaders, KOLs, as they're called in China. So China today is the number one retail market for apparel and fashion and the number one market Chinese consumers for luxury goods. So either purchased in China or when they're shopping overseas. So this is a critical market for fashion and luxury brands. So the question was, what do you need to connect with the consumers? Because on our platform, we have 700 million consumers in China, more than 700 million. So we've created a set of technology working with the brands that allows them to connect and give those special experiences to their consumers. I think what we've seen since COVID has come out uh, in the last four months is an incredible acceleration and willingness of brands to finally adapt these technologies. As case in point, Fontana points to InTime, a chain of Chinese department stores Alibaba acquired in 2017, all 65 of which were forced to close during China's lockdown. Their stores were closed in China, and this is true for you know every brand. So the question was, how can we keep our customers engaged? How can we maintain that relationship that we've built with our consumers? So we started doing live streaming directly from InTime. So live streaming meant that the sales assistant in the store, so the person that I would be used to interacting with when I went into the store, could get on live stream and start talking to their consumers, presenting products, and shipping product out of their closed stores. In fact, Fontana says, InTime mobilized 5,000 of its in-store staff to become live streamers. I found this particularly interesting. Not only was Fontana suggesting that in Alibaba's world, online experiences supported by technology can draw consumers to physical retail, but that physical retail experiences supported by human beings can also be narrowcast to specific consumers. To learn more, I called InTime CEO Chen Zhaodong. And another thing is, uh, before in a physical store, this stuff only can serve one or two groups of uh, customer in it just near the counter. But right now, they just use the live streaming to to communicate with uh, maybe ten or hundred, or even a even a thousand group of people online. So um, in that way, a lot of customers can have the information. Uh, in the same time. So in that kind of business model, our staff can serve a lot of bunch of uh, customer in the same time. So uh, right now, the, the the physical store we just opened maybe 10 o'clock in, a, in the morning, there were not very uh, heavy traffic in our store. So the staff, they will, they will have the live streaming to introduce the new new brand and the new uh, products to the to the customer, and then the the customer can just just click the uh, screen to have their order, and then or even they pick up uh, uh, that products in the store or order to the products directly to their home. 
In essence, what Chen was describing is a world where online becomes the store, and the store itself becomes a stage for the production of live connections between salespeople and customers, more customers than would ever be possible within a physical store, with purchases then delivered to their homes in as little as two hours. In fact, according to Chen, the combination of live streaming and in-app sales were an essential part of how InTime was able to survive the initial lockdown. What was developing was a picture whereby online shopping was not only set to become more lifelike, realistic and discovery-based, but also one that promoted human connection on an unprecedented scale. What I remained less certain about was the future of smaller, independent merchants, merchants that lacked the deep pockets of an Amazon or the technical prowess of an Alibaba. Where did they fit into the future of retail, or do they fit in at all? The answer to that question, it turns out, came in the form of another question. What if we gave small businesses the tools that typically were reserved for bigger businesses? What would happen? And the answer to that question was, well, it would level the playing field. Harley Finkelstein is the chief operating officer of Shopify, a company that enables commerce across millions of merchants worldwide. I met Harley in 2012 when we both happened to be speaking at a conference in Toronto. I can still clearly recall him regaling a small room of mostly small and medium-sized retailers laying out an impassioned case for why taking their businesses online was no longer optional. It was a humble start, born out of one key insight. It was impossible 15 years ago for a small business or an emerging brand to build a beautiful, scalable, high-functioning online store. And the reason it was difficult was because the technology was set up in such a way that the barrier to entry was effectively capital. You needed money to build an online store. And if you didn't have money to build an online store, you know, it started kind of at a couple hundred thousand dollars, went up to many millions of dollars. The only other option you really had was you were able to sell your products on a marketplace. And although the marketplace side of the coin was less expensive, it forced you to effectively rent customers from that marketplace. E-commerce software leader Shopify has no doubt been a top performing growth stock this year, more than doubling since a breakout in February. In the eight years or so since meeting him in that small, nondescript conference room, Finkelstein and the team at Shopify have not only leveled the playing field, they've created a field unto themselves, generating $1.5 billion in revenue in 2019 and during the pandemic, providing a vital lifeline for millions of businesses. As for Finkelstein, he remains as passionate about the cause today as he was years ago. Actually, it's been interesting. If you were to look at Shopify, if you just to take our U.S. stores and you were to aggregate them and for a second pretend like they are a single merchant, we would be the second largest online retailer in America. That's a cool sort of flex, but why that's really more impactful is because what you realize is each one of these retailers on their own has no way to compete against the massive economies of scale of the Amazons or the Walmarts or the Best Buys or the Home Depots of the world. But because they're all integrated through a platform, which is Shopify, we can actually create economies of scale for them and not keep them for ourselves, distribute those economies of scale, which even further levels the playing field. Today, Finkelstein and the Shopify team see their platform not as a moat, protecting their merchants from large players like Amazon, Facebook, and Instagram, but rather as a critical plug-and-play interface, 
allowing them to integrate whatever social platform or marketplace they believe their customers are present on. Sort of a Switzerland of e-commerce. Most recently, for example, Shopify inked a deal with Walmart, allowing select Shopify merchants to sell on Walmart.com. We feel like Walmart.com already has an existing base of consumers. But up until very recently, Walmart.com only sold Walmart's products, products that Walmart actually uh, purchased and were reselling, or in some cases of the private label, uh, they, they were selling directly. When they opened up that marketplace or that they opened up Walmart.com and said, hey, we want to invite third-party sellers on, you had a supply and demand issue. On one hand, we know we have the demand side because we know so many people are going to Walmart.com, but Walmart needs to stock that marketplace with products that people want, whether it's Bombas socks, or it's Tommy John underwear, or it's Allbirds shoes, or it's Kylie cosmetics, or it's Gymshark t-shirts. Um, they want to have great products there. Well, all of those direct-to-consumer brands that consumers love, that they deeply care about, those are all Shopify merchants. When asked if moves like this could turn Shopify itself into one of the mega marketplaces it originally set out to be antithetical to, Finkelstein says he sees it differently. Some of these retailers are trying to build these empires. Uh, we've said that we're trying to arm the rebels. What we've noticed is that consumers have now began to vote with their wallets to buy from the rebels instead of buying from some of these empires. That consumers are now choosing to buy direct from the brands themselves for a whole bunch of reasons, price, experience, quality, but also because we as consumers, and I think COVID has shown this, we actually believe that in order for us to have a well-rounded, interesting society and culture, we actually need these small businesses to exist. And I think that's what our goal is. We say we want to make commerce better for everyone because we think without a company like Shopify, the future of commerce is going to rest in the hands of the few, not the many. So... Will we spend more and more time online? The answer seems to be an unequivocal yes. And will we buy more there too? Yes again. But that doesn't necessarily imply a dehumanizing of retail. It doesn't have to be so. Indeed, what we may be seeing is a return to human connection, visual discovery and entertainment at a scale never before imaginable. A future where technology doesn't subjugate physical experiences, but supplements them celebrates them, and enhances and informs them. A future where brands use their physical assets as stages, film sets, and studios supplying rich experiential content to vast online audiences, and where smaller, unique brands, the rebels, level the playing field and secure their vital place in the post-digital future. If you've enjoyed this episode of Retail Reborn, created by the Business of Fashion and presented by Brookfield Properties, subscribe to the BOF podcast to receive all future episodes in our six-part series. Until next time, I'm Doug Stevens. Doug Stevens.